You're listening to The Great Lakes Beacon, interviews and news from the 9th Coast Guard District. Uh, good day, Coast Guard listeners. This is uh, Lieutenant Austin Fulmer. I'm here with uh, Rear Admiral Cottrell. Uh, she's interviewing today Master Chief McKay. He is the officer in charge of Station Grand Haven and the Coast Guard's ancient keeper. Um, how are you today, Master Chief? Uh, very good, uh, Lieutenant. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking. Okay, thanks. Admiral, it's all yours. Okay, so Master Chief McKay, you and I go back a little ways. Uh, you were at Depot Bay, yep. I believe, when I was a Chief of Staff in D-13. And um, that was the first time I met you. And uh, I think um, I just remember being super impressed with your leadership and, uh, and what you were doing with the station there in, in a very remote location. So can you can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, your career direct trajectory and you know, how you, how you ended up becoming an uh, officer in charge? Yeah, sure, Admiral. And then uh, just a minor correction, we it was uh, Checo River is where Checo I was at. Checo River. And, yeah. Now, I was stationed at Depot Bay, but uh, for the time we were together, it was Checo River, which is the same um, same uh, sector, sector North Bend. So. Right. Okay. On the other end, you know, both the ends are both remote, so hard <laughs> sometimes. They are very remote, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you just asking me, Admiral, for kind of my uh, my career path. Is that yeah, correct? right. I mean, what would you tell a uh, you know a young person right now thinking of becoming a bosun mate, and you know thinking about following you know in your footsteps? Um, just you know how you got from you know boot camp to kind of where you are now. Sure. Well. Admiral, it, it all started like it does for most people. You know, we we either see a poster or see something to get us excited. In my case, my I was planning on, I was in college and, and wanted to, uh, it was actually the Gulf War was going on. For some reason, that kind of inspired a young 19-year-old, uh, and, and I was looking for something to do in that uh, capacity, and I looked at the Navy and got excited about looking through uh, that lens, and my father just mentioned to me, hey, uh, what did you think about the Coast Guard? And I hadn't really ever considered even looking there at all, uh, but I listened to what he, you know, his advice, and I, I went in and checked that out later on, um, and, uh, you know, the short story is, is I ended up uh, in boot camp in September of 1991, and then from there, I my first uh, you know assignment was uh, the Coast Guard Cutter Resolute in Astoria, Oregon, and uh, that was uh, a great excitement. Did did two years on the, the cutter, and and we went from uh, deep down in Mexico on the Pacific deep, and actually we went up into the the Bering Sea. Two tens don't mm. do that, or not many of them around anyway yeah. uh, anymore. But they don't do. Uh, they didn't. They don't do those patrols. They left them for the 378s later on. But uh, it was good, good experience. Enjoyed it. Thought maybe I would go in at the time was ASM was mm. survivalment. Yeah, and uh, kind of got interested in what bosun mates did on the cutter, and and uh, ended up striking bosun mate. And from there, I thought maybe I would go to Texas and try something new. I'm actually from Oregon. But I mm-hmm. uh, thought I uh, would try something new out there. And my my captain, which was Commander Robert Stevens, told me that uh, you don't want to go to Texas. You uh, you want to go be a surfman. <laughs> so I, uh, I didn't know much about either. I just thought it would be different. So I ended up uh, 
uh, getting orders to Station Saisa River in Florence, Oregon. Mm. And again, uh, enjoyed that experience as well, just like I did the cutter. And uh, completed my coxswain qual in the 44. Eventually, through time, worked up uh, through those four years and made surfman on the 44 motor lifeboat. Wow. And, uh, That's awesome. What's your surfman yeah. number? Uh, 257. Yeah, everybody knows that, right? 257. So then uh, in that last year, uh, they combined, if anyone's familiar with those units, but they combined Station Saïs River with Station Umpqua River. Mm-hmm. So my last year, I actually spent most of my time at Umpqua, and that's where I, I actually got my letter was at uh, Station Umpqua, mm-hmm. but it was still under the same command. And then from there, uh, transferred way up the coast to uh, Newport, Oregon, mm-hmm. and uh where I was worked at a depot bay in Newport for six years and uh, finished my surfman call on the 30 footer, uh, 31st surf rescue boat, as well as the 52 and then eventually the, the 47. And then uh, after those two units, depot bay and uh, Yaquina Bay, I went to station size, uh, yeah, station, <laughs> I'm trying to remember where I was at. No, station, uh, um, where is it? East Coast. Southwest Harbor. Sorry about that. Station okay. Southwest Harbor in uh, in Maine, Maine. And did uh, three years as the, the executive petty officer at that station. Mm-hmm. And then from there went on to uh, my first OIC job at Station Morro Bay, California, a, a surf station there. And then, and then got a, uh, there was no more surf stations available for a second command. And I went to, uh, to this place I never heard of, Station Grand Haven. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> from there, did four years, enjoyed that, then went back to the West Coast and was the officer in charge of Station Checo River. And then for my last three years, uh, Station Grand Haven opened up and they made it a Master Chief. So uh, I was on the same rotation and I asked to finish it out here and they've let me do that. It's very gracious of them and that's where I am right now. So I've enjoyed my whole career and I really don't have any real complaints. Wow, that's great. So you were you were OIC of Grand Haven twice then? That's right. Wow, once that's as right. a senior chief and once as a master chief. That's correct, Admiral. Wow, that's pretty unusual, I think. Wow, that's great. So um, just to kind of go back to your dad, just sort of pointing you towards the Coast Guard, did he have experience with the Coast Guard? I mean, what was his um, motivation? No, well, that's a good question, Admiral. My, my father did four years in the Navy. And uh, when I, uh, he had just talked to somebody about it um, mm. and heard some good things about it. And he enjoyed the Navy, but didn't really want to make a career out of it. And he mm. heard that uh, Coast Guard was pretty neat and actually had some good opportunities for career paths. And so he encouraged me to go that route. And I typically, uh, the thing that was kind of unique is I had gotten really excited about the Navy and I went home to uh, tell my dad and and uh, I was hoping he'd say, yeah, go for it. But mm-hmm. instead, he kind of gave me a, he never would tell me no. He would just not give me his blessing. And, and mm-hmm. for me, his blessing was pretty important. So I mm-hmm. I remember feeling a little bit frustrated that he yeah. would say, yeah, just just join. But I'm very thankful that he encouraged me to, to you know, take my time and, and uh, look into the Coast Guard first. Well, the Coast Guard's thankful for him, too, then. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. A wise, a wise man. Right. And that's right. And, and you exactly. also for listening to your dad. So that's great. <laughs> so um, so you didn't end up going to Texas and your CO pointed you to, towards a surf station. What what was his motivation, do you think? 
Well, I think he had mentioned, um, Admiral, that uh, he felt like he just kind of he'd seen my personality, what I was doing, and we were really close. Obviously, at the in Astoria, very close to the Motor Lifeboat School, mm-hmm. and so there was a little bit of influence uh, there on us anyway. And so my chief that work had recently come from the Motor Lifeboat School, and so I think the the CEO liked what he saw and he just wanted to encourage me to go that route and and uh you know i was blindly making decisions kind of where i wanted to go so when when he pointed me in a direction that made sense i i quickly said yeah sounds great let's do it that's awesome and then then you're you the boat you started out on was a 44 is that right that is correct Admiral. yeah yeah i worked on a 44 i don't know if i ever got underway on one but i remember working on one in marblehead when i first got there and uh we had to uh, clean out the void, um, and uh, yeah, that was before a lot of OSHA <laughs> restrictions. Right. <laughs> right. And we, had, I remember just crawling in this little space with a with this, um, you know, a sandblaster and sandblasting right. inside of this thing, and I didn't know any better. It was actually it wasn't a bad job. It was just interesting, but uh, right, probably yeah. not a lot of safety precautions. No, there. <laughs> not a lot really. No, yeah. Well, that's great, and. Um, so then, uh, then on to D- so you spent a lot of time in Oregon, D- Depot Bay, Newport, and then uh, and then your first OIC job in uh, Morro Bay. So Correct. compare, you know, kind of like your first go at OIC to to now. Like what what do you think were kind of the mm, things that happened that really sort of solidified for you what it means to be an OIC? Well, Admiral, I think. Uh you know, there's the, it's been 14 years of, of being an OIC, so there's definitely a, a change in how you lead and, you know, all the things you've learned. And mm-hmm. um, but, so I would say if you were to take uh, me back in, in 2006 when I took over, and uh, I would say there was, it was, I was excited, I was nervous, and uh, I think there was a lot of decisions that were made often not that they were poor decisions, but a lot of decisions were made because you, on um, you know, your first time, you're a little bit more nervous, so you might be mm-hmm. a little more reactive or um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not as uh, experienced, I guess, to make the decisions that you want to make. And I think that's probably natural to everybody. Sure. But uh, I think through time, um, if you take and go fast forward, um, I. I it's hard to really pin down a difference, but I could say that there's been a huge difference in learning and maturity on my part, uh, mm-hmm. just just in the growth of over those years because of you know the the repetitive uh, responses that you have to make or the repetitive personnel challenges you have to deal with or mm-hmm. or even life changes. It's just uh, there's a lot of uh, life growth, I guess, in there. Absolutely, yeah. So what would you tell um, a young person? I'm sure you've already had these kinds of discussions, but, you know, a young bosun mate that's sort of um, thinking about becoming a bosun mate, you know, not sure. What what would you tell that person? Well, those are admiral conversations that we have often. And a lot of times we, you know, we'll, we'll talk to a non-rate or, you know, about which way they want to go. And I, I try to steer away from, you know, just lean them towards both to make because there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of different choices and they're all good choices that, that they can make. And, but if, if both mate was there, you know, kind of what they were curious about, 
Um, I think for me, because I only can really speak on what makes me feel the Bosemate rate is, is good, but mm-hmm. I do enjoy the fact that there's every day is a little bit different mm-hmm. and uh, there's unique challenges uh, or different experiences you can learn within the Bosemate world. In other words, you have, you know, where I did the surfing world, you can have a cutter world, you've got the mm-hmm. pursuit world, you've got, I mean, the list goes on where you can come into so many different communities with so many different uh, experiences and knowledge base that it's uh, it never there's so much growth and so many opportunities you can have within different within this uh, Bosomate world and so you know you have in general a Bosomate is one thing but our specialty there's a you can be kind of a jack of all trades but then there's always a bit of a specialty that each Bosomate has and I think that's kind of a, an excitement yeah that, that's uh, yeah. opens the door for everybody. That's a really good point, you know, because I think sometimes people maybe get stuck in thinking, you know, Bosom Mate just does one thing, and uh, but you've done a lot of different things, and um, I want to back up a little bit, you know, so we, you and I talk about surfmen as if everyone knows what we're talking about, but what what's the difference between a surfman and a, and a regular coxswain or a regular boat driver? Well, Admiral D, you know, when you come to a, a coxswain, uh, they're you know, every every coxswain, a coxswain, a surfman, all have, you know, the same responsibility. It's 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 a big responsibility to operate, you know, these vessels uh, to be responsible for nav- the safety, navigation of crew and the personnel. Um, the the difference when it comes to surfmen is a little bit more time in maybe a specific area. So. Um, what especially would be is you can operate a boat in conditions larger than what you know a, a standard coxswain. So standard coxswain uh, is about ten foot. So we we stay with ten foot. So anything that goes beyond ten foot, then you're starting to move into the heavy weather coxswain or the surfman, where they're you know they have a depending on the platform. But for the forty seven, it would be thirty foot seas, twenty wow. foot surf, wow. and so it's it, it's just an experience level difference. Um, you know, you're on the Pacific Northwest, a few uh, surf stations on the East Coast, you know, you're dealing, and then some down in California, uh, you know, there's all of those surf stations, you're dealing with bars and inlets that mm-hmm. have, that can be uh, relatively dangerous, and you're uh, su- supporting the the local, um, you know, fishing fleet and uh, commercial um, uh community that's going in and out of there mm-hmm. so it's just a, a training experience that's a little bit on the higher level of a sea state and wind conditions right right so um so surfmen have numbers like aviators have numbers and uh that's correct so wh- where did that originate you know in terms of um you know having a number well the numbers kind of go back to the life-saving service where they would they would number you know, I, I don't remember exactly. Kind of caught me off guard here, but mm-hmm. they, they, there's a the life saving surf didn't number their their boatmen or their surfmen. They would have different numbers, and that mm-hmm. kind of fell away. And then in the modern day Coast Guard, and then it was during my time frame. I believe it was uh, late 1990s or early 2000, where they came together. The you know the boat, more light boat community came together and they kind of want to add a little bit of tradition to it and and the the actually the boat forces 
731 office be able to speak a little bit better on this, but mm-hmm. when they, for the history, but we came together, they came together and they started to give everybody a number mm-hmm. uh, like it was in the past. And so we had, uh, I think when it started in that time frame, the first, I believe, first number they picked, I think it was 113, I think, and, or a little bit past that. Maybe it was just past that. I can't mm-hmm. remember the number. I'd have to go back and look at the, the servant registry, but uh, it was uh, Master Chief Steve Billman was the oldest surfman. Mm. Uh, and so he started that number. And then anyone who was not in the Coast Guard, they would uh, they would kind of backtrack and give them a number. Mm. And then there's some people in... Some people would come out of the woodwork and say, "Hey, I was qualified in, in this year," and mm-hmm. so they would they would package together, and they still have like, let's say one one three is the number. They would package everybody together that's in this year, and and, and uh, so at the Motor Life Boat School again, they would be able to speak better on it too because they're the one that's in charge of it. But yeah, uh, um, that's kind of where it's come, and it's and it's grown a little bit. So mm-hmm. now we're. Surfman, cause when I when I first made surfman, I didn't have a number, so I got one later. Mm-hmm. But uh, eventually, now when you um, make surfman, because it is it is a pretty it's pretty involved uh, big involvement as well as a, a neat accomplishment. That, yeah. that it just is kind of a uh, a little ticket to say a little check to say, hey, um, you're 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 part of this team now. Let's make sure that you. Um, do a good job at this and understand that the dangers of this and understand that you, you earned it. So let's not uh, take it lightly. No, that's great. I think it's a great tradition. I remember, I don't remember which surf station I visited the first time when I was out West there, but they had a, a big plaque on the wall and they had these tags with people's right. n- numbers on them. And I that was pretty cool. I thought was, uh, you know, yeah. definitely a sense of unit pride as well as individual pride for those people who had earned that. Um, so, um, so tell us about, you know, a memorable, like a, a memorable rescue or sea story that you, you know, as a, as a operating, uh, surfman, you know, maybe a, a BM2 or BM1 that, that's, that stands out to you. You know, Admiral, that's, that's like the number one question I get all the time. I know. And I, always, I get the same question, but. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, and honestly, I, I get kind of tongue-tied, but I, I think I can give you an answer here. But the, the, I'll just back up to give you the story behind that. Every time I get that question, I kind of try to find something that I can remember. But I always remember a good one whenever someone else is telling a story, because then it reminds me of something that maybe is familiar. But I can tell you probably one of the initial wasn't the initial, but one that really sticks out. I was on the 30-foot rescue boat out of Newport, Oregon. And, uh, the, it was a, I made a risk-based decision. Uh, maybe we thought a little bit different, but still it was risk-based decision. And it was, uh, one that didn't end up where I didn't actually rescue the people, but the people did get rescued by the, actually by the helicopter. So mm. it's more towards your side, but anyway, mm. they, they ended up uh, getting rescued, but I, it was kind of a decision that we had to make. So there was a, a person just north, about three miles north, uh, a man. It was in September. I think it was actually Labor Day weekend. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and his family were on the beach uh, just north of Newport, and they were just playing in the water. Big swell that was growing. And uh, 
Big Swell came up on the beach, sucked him out. He's in his pants and T-shirt, and he's getting sucked out um, mm-hmm. into the big, big seas there. So we get the call, and uh, <clears throat> but I think the seas were 10 feet at the time, mm-hmm. which was one, I mean, earlier that day. But by the time that we got this call, they jumped in uh, about a five-hour period from 10 to 18 feet. So, you know, that's why you're getting these beachgoers kind of getting in trouble because now the the sea state is, is getting pushed up onto the, the shore. And the, yeah. the winds were blowing pretty hard, but it was sunny and fairly warm uh, for the Oregon coast. And uh, the the swell was something that came from way offshore. So it, was, it wasn't generated from a local storm. It was just something that was growing as it was traveling across. It was starting to hit shore. So um, the Scott Clendenin was my CEO, and he looked at uh, – uh, one of the BM1s was Jake Albinio. He said, hey, take the 52. He said, I'll take the 44. And he said, uh, Kirk, you take the 30-footer. And uh, I remember when he said that, my eyes got really big because I knew the sea state was growing. <laughs> he and gave I you thought, the smallest boat. Gave me the smallest boat. It's the fastest boat, but the smallest. So the 30-foot yeah. rescue boat would go 30 knots, and the uh, 44 would go, you know, like 12 to, is max at 14, but probably about mm-hmm. 12 knots. And then the 52 would make some around 11. So um, <clears throat> they all took off and I hopped onto the 30-footer the and came in behind them and, and met the 52 at the bar. And I remember the 52 was, was heading out and the big swell just headed up. And all I could see was I saw everybody on deck clearly. In other words, he's pointing straight up and down. And that was when I thought, oh man, this is pretty big. And so then the bar wasn't breaking all the time. There was occasional break, but still there's 18 foot rollers coming in and mm-hmm. I, the, the 30 footers limit was, um, 10 foot surf. And so I was about ready to say, no, I can't do it. But then I kept thinking about this guy that was down the beach that was getting mm-hmm. sucked out. And so I was a BM2 at the time, a little bit younger than I am now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the decision was to go or not go. And this was in 1997. Yeah, so things yeah. might be a little bit different, mm-hmm. but I, I went ahead and, and looked and talked to my engineer because there's only two people. And I said, uh, are you good? <laughs> and he, he said, yeah, I'm good. And so I, I said, well, it's not breaking. So let's we can get out and get this guy. And I know I can outrun these guys and we can get him before, before he gets in trouble. So I said, mm-hmm. all right, let's do it. So I went out across the bar. And uh, as soon as I turned to the north, another – uh, big realization came to me because I, I went up on the top of the swell and I went down the trough and as soon as I got in the trough there was like the swell was steep enough that I feel like I'd just reach out and poke it wow. <laughs> and then, and then uh, the uh, the wind stopped in the bottom of the trough so then all of a sudden when all these three things I mentioned were the solid side the 52 straight up went north and got in the trough and the wind stopped because the, the wind had got blocked by the swell mm-hmm. and it looked like a wall was next to me. All of a sudden, my my heart went in my throat when I, I felt myself uh, for the first time kind of get really scared where mm-hmm. I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, I had to talk to myself, say, all right, breathe, because I realized mm-hmm. that I was over mm-hmm. my head. Mm-hmm. So I uh, <clears throat> went out, we kept going, we were launching towards the, once we got going, it was fine. It's just, I'm in this big, big swell and we're, we're heading north and I see the helo and by the, before we even got on scene, the helo had pulled this mm-hmm. this guy out of, you know, safely out. So we were able to turn around and head back. But the worst thing is, is coming back. The yeah, tide I was going to say, well, getting back, yeah. Yeah, so as we're coming back, the the tide had 
started to shift and it was starting to run out. So now all that big swell is turned into breakers. Mm. And I'm in this 30 uh, foot boat and I are, what you do is they typically train you as a surfman to run out to the safe water buoy, mm-hmm. make kind of a, uh, you know, let's, let's time the swell and then let's head on in. Mm-hmm. And so Jake Albinio, he was a senior surfman. He's saying, hey, Kirk, come out to the whistle buoy and let's let's look at this and then mm-hmm. we'll head on in. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, um, BM2, I'm younger, not as, as experienced, but one thing I knew is I wasn't getting in across that bar mm-hmm. if we went out to the whistle buoy. So mm-hmm. I called up Jake. I said, Jake, I don't think we better. I said, I got to get in because uh, that tide has changed. And mm-hmm. so we debated a little bit. And uh, eventually I just I went ahead and went in. We had the 44 on the inside, the 52 on the out. And uh, um, I ran inside. And by the grace of God, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> there was mountains and breakers everywhere. Wow. And somehow I made it through them all. So anyway, the, the, the moral of the story is I didn't really get a good rescue on that one. But it was a... It was a good eye opener for me in making good decisions. Turns out it was it was okay, but it was kind of a, one of those, you know, when you make a decision, this is for real. So it was yeah. one of those uh, growing moments for me. Yeah, I uh, I used to ask pilots, you know, during their aircraft commander board, I'm like, tell me about a time you scared yourself. <laughs> and um, you know, if they didn't have a story, then I was like, hmm, I don't know if you're ready, you know, because I think those. I think those kinds of stories, like what you just told, are, are, you know, shape, shape us as responders, you know, and shape our decision making. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. It's pretty, um, that's a great story. And it's a great story of decision making. And it's a great story too, why we have a GAR model or a peace model that we use now. Right. <laughs> yeah. To help people make right. those decisions. Um, so, um, let's see what, um, So decision-making, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's a big part of being a coxswain. And, you know, you talked about the responsibility is the same for a coxswain or a surfman. And uh, could you speak to that a little bit, you know, in terms of, of uh, what we expect out of a coxswain? Or what you expect as the OIC, I guess. What, what, you know? uh, yes, Adam. Yeah. So um, I think what a coxswain needs to understand more than anything is that, you know, the the vessel that they've earned a license, if you will, on to operate is, uh, you know, it's bigger than, than them. And, uh, you know, their skill, skill level or their decisions that they make, uh, are, are very important, not only because they're trying to save a life out there or save up some property, but they're also in charge of, you know, three or more people on their crew. And so their lives that, uh, you know, they have that responsibility. And so there's, there's responsibility of, you know, the rules of the road and bringing them back safely and the responsibility, how quickly they respond. And, and when in their response that they are making uh, quick heroic decisions, they need to make sure they understand that uh, uh, there's more than just one person on board. Yeah. It's a trust issue, right? I mean, I know. Right. You probably have uh, the boards and, you know, you're trying to get, you know, people can be very technically proficient, but you, you've got to trust them. I think that's one of the biggest things that's hard to measure. 
Absolutely, Admiral. And, you know, judgment and maturity is what we kind of lean on. And I, mm-hmm. you know, what Cox and Heavyweather Cox and Serpent, that's all straight across the board. As the level of experience or level of danger goes up, sometimes we we might, um, it's it's like a, you know, it's something that we have to measure a little bit more carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when it comes to, you know, we have these, you know, PQSs or we have uh, JQRs and things to sign stuff off for, or the qualification task. Everything gets signed off. One, signing off is one of the, you know, of the big pictures. It's part of it, but the bigger part is is making sure that it all comes together and you can apply it, as well as you trust that this individual is going to make those decisions and be able to handle um, the vessel in as much conditions and different environments that you can you can allow them to experience. I mean, I can be able to experience everything because a lot of experiences during the real operation. But yeah, um, you want to give them the best you know opportunity to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, you know what I used to feel with aircraft commanders is you know once I gave them the keys to the aircraft, right? You know, or the license. You know, I, like you, it's it's about rescuing folks, but it's also about taking care of your crew. And and um, I. But the real learning occurs once you know. Once you go out for that very first time, and you're you're the one in charge. You're the one signing for the boat. Or you're the one signing for the right. aircraft, and it's kind of a heady experience. Uh, but that's when you really start owning it, you know, and learning a lot about yourself as well as uh, your crews. Um, so, um, so you're the ancient keeper, and um, could you give a little background on on what that means? Yes, Admiral. So, I think 2002 was the first time we've actually awarded the ancient keeper through 731, which is the uh, boat forces up at headquarters. But the Joshua James Ancient Keeper Award was established. Um, back then and it was to honor the longevity and outstanding performance in Coast Guard and boat operations. So if you have a someone who has basically uh, I believe that every every well actually I'll, the, in next year a new member will be chosen and they'll look for people to have at least five years of command and ten years of uh, boat force experience and then they're going to choose someone who has the you know, the most per district and then headquarters will choose one. But mm-hmm. really it's looking for someone with some longevity experience so you can speak um, as a conduit um, to, you know, present basically for the other uh, boat forces uh, different specialties. And so uh, we're able to, I'm currently I chair uh, the BFAC, the Boat Force Advisory Council. Mm-hmm. And the BFAC serves as a day-to-day sounding board uh, for the boat forces issues. Um, the, the council members, which uh, are work with me, serve as a communication conduit between the field and the, the boat forces leadership to ensure the office of boat forces is continually linked, continually linked to the field. So we're hoping that mm. you know we can we can throw a little ground truth up that way. And I it's it's very unique relationship, and we work very well with seven three one. And they uh, they help us. Seven three one is again, you know, the boat forces up at headquarters, and they uh, they use us quite often. And I think it's uh, really um, beneficial to the the boat forces community. 
Yeah, I remember learning about the BFAC when I was in D13, and um, I do think you guys have a lot of a lot of uh, valuable input, you know, to to headquarters and and that kind of real world experience about like, yeah, this makes sense, this doesn't make sense, and and um, so I appreciate you serving in that capacity. So um, we're going to wrap it up, but is there any like last, you know, any things that you would like to to share with our listeners in terms of your career or leadership or um, you know, obviously this won't be your last, last word, but, uh, <laughs> anything you'd like to share? Well, Admiral, I don't, I not, well, I suppose I could just give a little bit. One of the things I like to push out is, uh, to my crew is to be of uh, the philosophy is we always like to tell people to be a, you know, people of integrity and, and, uh, uh people of in, uh, character and be above reproach. And I think that's, just something I like to challenge everybody to be and be above reproach is kind of the the, the main theme where I push out. So quick example, person of character means that you do right when everybody's looking, integrity doing right when nobody's looking. And be above reproach is making sure you don't have anything held over you. Uh, so sometimes perception might have hold something over you. So just mm-hmm. making sure everything we do, we do things uh, knowing that we're doing something in the Coast Guard bigger than ourselves. We're wearing a uniform that uh, is bigger than ourselves. So uh, people are always watching. And uh, to set that example, being a person of integrity, being above reproach is, is valuable. And that's something that I, I try to throw out to my crew, and hopefully um, they take that and run with it. So that would be my last uh, <clears throat> parting words, if you will, Admiral. <laughs> that's a great philosophy. And, uh, I'm going right. to uh, borrow that for the next time I do some unit visits, the, the perceptions issue and the above reproach. So, yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And um, thank you for your time today. Um, I really uh, appreciate talking to you. And, um, oh, well, you know, we go back a little ways. But, uh, um, you know, as we both move forward in retirement, um, I, I think, you know, you can lo- definitely look back on a really awesome career and, I know that you've influenced a lot of young people in a really, really positive way. And so, you know, outside of all the wonderful rescues I'm sure you've had that you didn't, you know, humbly did not share with us, but uh, um, the people that you've impacted, um, that's that's what really impresses me. So thanks a lot, Master Chief. Well, thank you, Admiral, for your time. And, and of course, we also, uh, and I, I personally appreciate your leadership. So thank you much. All right. Well, thanks. We're going to sign off here with uh, the Ancient Keeper, um, Joshua James, Ancient Keeper of the Coast Guard, Master Chief Kirk McKay. Thanks. Thanks, Master Chief. Thank you, Evan.